RTHK News. It's 11 o'clock, I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. The government tells schools to punish students who join a proposed class boycott. Debate heats up over a new police unit to enforce the national security law. And a family of three is arrested for possessing a handgun, which the police say may be used to attack officers. The Education Bureau is trying to rein in school children who are against the national security law. Education Minister Kevin Young has asked primary and secondary school principals to punish students who take part in a proposed class boycott to oppose the law or join any activities at school to express political views. Several groups have called for what they described as a referendum this coming Sunday on whether to join a boycott and a general strike. Mr Young says organisers of the campaign are trying to exploit students and affect learning. He also warned teachers not to join boycotts. Education sector lawmaker Ipkin Yoon accused the government of putting pressure on schools, arguing it would be counterproductive. The secretary is expressing very strong words. I think it's very high pressure on schools to suppress the students' uh, different ideas and to suppress the students' action. I don't think this is a very effective way in dealing with this kind of situation. RTHK says it's planning to air a series of TV programmes on the national security laws being drawn up by Beijing. The station will broadcast 20 shows, each about five minutes long, from later this month, with interviews from people from all walks of life for balanced coverage. RTHK's announcement came after a working group under its board of advisers told the public broadcaster to produce more programmes to foster people's sense of national identity and to give people a correct understanding of the security laws after meeting with management today. The board's chairman, Eugene Chan, denied he was pressuring RTHK to promote the controversial legislation. I won't use the word promote, I will use the word embrace. We will embrace the law. We are a public broadcaster. It's said clearly in our mission and purposes that our job is to produce programs to let the citizens understand one country, two systems and actual implementation. A fully comprehensive program should also include what the society has their views on. And I think it is the most appropriate platform that all those controversies or all those views can be fully explored explain and put everyone's mind at ease. Pro-government and pan-democratic lawmakers have clashed over police plans to set up a dedicated unit to enforce the national security law as soon as it takes effect. It's still not clear yet how local police would work with mainland agents who are expected to operate here in Hong Kong. New People's Party legislator Regina Ips says a security committee led by the chief executive should be set up to coordinate efforts in enforcing the new law, pointing out that a similar body existed in the colonial era. Mrs Yip also says she prefers Hong Kong to handle the matter itself. I think it is much better for Hong Kong civil servants to be responsible for enforcing new national security legislation and for training uh, new personnel. Um, the NPC Standing Committee's decision only mentioned the need to establish new agencies if necessary. If the Hong Kong government is able to discharge its responsibilities effectively, there would be no need for the central government to set up additional departments in Hong Kong. Across the political divide, Democratic Party Chairman Wu Chi-wai says there's a lack of transparency about the new dedicated police unit. They try to put everything in the back box and we can know nothing about how the act will be, how the uh, implementation will be, how the execution will be and how human rights can be protected under the law. 
Police have arrested a family of three in the New Territories for allegedly possessing a handgun and ammunition. Officers cited online comments suggesting the police might be targeted. Priscilla Ng has the story. The police say they raided a unit in Hongshuiqiu in Yunlong yesterday and made the arrests after seizing a handgun, 390 bullets, other accessories and an extendable baton. The trio, aged between 38 and 65, are believed to be the parents and their son. Superintendent Raymond Chow of the Narcotics Bureau said he believes the suspects purchased gun parts from overseas websites and assembled them in Hong Kong. He said investigations are underway about their intent and pointed out that someone had made a comment online threatening to attack the police. Superintendent Chow added that the authorities have seen a surge in the number of weapon seizures in recent months and urged people not to break the law. You're listening to RTHK. The time is coming up to five minutes past 11. A leading patient rights advocate has welcomed a decision by the hospital authority to lift a ban on visits at some public hospitals. But Tim Pang believes it could have been made earlier, as Wendy Wong reports. Visiting rules will be relaxed as 16 non-acute hospitals, such as infirmaries and convalescent hospitals, starting from next Wednesday. But each patient can only be visited by one registered relative for an hour each week. The hospital authority says the decision was made after health experts assessed relevant infection control risks. In a statement, the authority says long-stay patients rely more heavily on support from family members, both psychologically and in their daily lives. The hospitals and wards concerned have not received any COVID-19 patients, it says, and crowd control measures will be put in place. A community organiser at Society for Community Organisation, Tim Pang, said some patients' families were very worried as the condition of their loved ones, especially those who can't move or talk, had deteriorated. He welcomes the arrangement, but thinks it comes a little too late. When the epidemic in Hong Kong is coming to a controlled situation, when the daily infection, confirmed infection cases is quite low, uh, we think it is already an appropriate time to relax the visiting restriction. He hoped the rules can be further relaxed as the coronavirus situation continues to improve. Prosecutors have dropped charges against one of the 15 defendants in connection with the storming of Legco on July the 1st last year. Nine of them were granted bail as the case prepares to head to the district court. Timmy Sung reports. Chao Lok Yim had faced a charge of illegally entering the Legco chamber. At a hearing in the Eastern Court, the prosecutor told the magistrate that they had decided to drop the charge because a piece of paper containing the defendant's fingerprint found in the Legco dining hall was all the evidence they had against him. Despite dropping the charge, the prosecutor said the defendant brought suspicion on himself because of the discovery of the fingerprint there, and so he should pay the legal cost. But the magistrate didn't accept his argument and ruled that the prosecution had to pay the fee. Twelve other defendants, including actor Gregory Wong, activist Fantas Lau, and former University of Hong Kong student leader M. Fia Sun, were told in the court they now face an additional rioting charge, in addition to entering or remaining in precincts of chamber. All but two of the defendants were granted bail, as the case is adjourned to August 3rd for the prosecution to prepare the transfer of the trial to the district court. One of the 12 defendants, Meng Kahin, was absent from the hearing. The court heard that he couldn't be reached. The magistrate issued a warrant to arrest him. 
two other defendants, former Hong Kong youth student leader Brian Leung and Fan Chen Men, who each face only one charge of illegally entering the electrical chamber, were also not present. The prosecutor said they will deliver the summonses to them in person. Mr. Leung returned to the U.S. to continue his study after the July 1st protest, which saw protesters storm Lechko and vandalized the building. The government has confirmed that the upcoming Legislative Council election will be held on September the 6th. The nomination period will run from July the 18th to 31st. Meanwhile, the Education Bureau says the day after LegCo and District Council elections will be a school holiday from now on. It says in recent elections, almost half of its polling stations were set up on campuses and some stations could only return the sites back to the schools in the morning because of a surge in voters. League of Social Democrats Chairman Raphael Wong says he's disappointed with a High Court decision to throw out his legal challenge over a ban on people sentenced to jail terms of three months or more from running for public office for five years. Justice Anderson Chow ruled that the ban is legitimate for maintaining public trust and confidence in elected councillors. Mr Wong is barred from running in elections until 2024, after he was jailed for eight months over incitement charges last year. The court said that this is the matter of the legislature, and that is ridiculous, I think. I think the court should have taken the responsibility to deal with this constitutional problem, but not to put the responsibility to the unfair and undemocratic legislature. The NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has welcomed Britain's decision to review the role of the Chinese telecoms company Huawei in the development of the country's 5G network. He said the West could not ignore the rise of China. China is coming closer to us. We see that in the Arctic. We see they are heavily investing in critical infrastructure uh, structure in Europe. Uh, and uh, we see, of course, China also operating in uh, cyberspace. Uh, so this is not about deploying uh, NATO into the South China Sea, but uh, uh, responding to the fact that China is coming closer to us. Britain decided earlier this year to allow Huawei technology to be used in its 5G network. The United States has been pushing for the company to be excluded from such infrastructure. Beijing has made the rare move of punishing one of the country's most popular social media platforms, Sina Weibo, by suspending some of its key functions for a week. The BBC's Celia Hatton reports. In April, the wife of a top executive at the Chinese internet giant Alibaba posted on Sina Weibo, warning another woman, a social media influencer, to stay away from her husband, Jiang Fan. Thousands liked that post and speculated on the drama online. The Chinese state media says that incident led China's powerful internet regulator to issue a rare punishment to Sina Weibo. The regulator did not fully confirm the news, saying only that the platform had interfered in online communications relating to the case of a man surnamed Jiang. More than 34 years after the murder of the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme, prosecutors say they have identified his killer on the basis of witness statements at the time. Stig Enström, a graphic designer who killed himself 20 years ago, is believed to have acted alone. The current prosecutor said Enström had been missed in the original police inquiry because officers had failed to give enough credence to witness statements identifying him. The Swedish diplomat and politician Pierre Shorey, who worked with Olaf Palmer, agrees. I think the uh, prosecutor has uh, made a good job. He's a serious person. I have been interviewed myself by his team. 
And he is also extremely critical of his predecessors who spent over 30 years ignoring uh, important uh, witnesses and evident information. So uh, I think this is as good as it gets. To sports and in football, Saarbrücken's dream run in the German Cup has come to an end. They were beaten 3-0 by Bayer Leverkusen in the semi-final. Playing for the first time since March because of the COVID-19 stoppage, Saarbrücken took the pitch without the presence of their home fans, who had been cheering them on as they knocked out four clubs from higher divisions to, to become Germany's first fourth-tier side to reach a cup semi-final. Leverkusen are through to their first German Cup final since 2009, where they will face either Bayern Munich or Eintracht Frankfurt. In the English Premier League, Everton will be allowed to host City rivals Liverpool at Goodison Park instead of playing at a neutral venue when they meet on the 21st of this month. Liverpool could clinch the league title with a win if Manchester City lose to Arsenal earlier. Police had initially believed the Merseyside derby could not be staged in Liverpool because of fears that fans would congregate. Premier League action will resume next week behind closed doors. To boxing and the WBO featherweight champion Shakur Stevenson remains undefeated after a six-round victory over Felix Caraballo in Las Vegas. It was the first major boxing event held in North America since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. Here's the BBC's Adi Adadoyin explaining the strict safety protocols put in place last night. Bob Arum has described this as one of the most challenging events that he's ever had to put on. And you're talking about a man whose career in boxing promotion dates back to the Muhammad Ali era. Uh, there'll be no fans or journalists in the arena tonight, which is a, a ballroom at the MGM Grand. Uh, the commentators won't be there either. They'll have to broadcast from a remote booth. And there's going to be another show there this Thursday. And the plan is to host 10 events there between now and mid-July. Uh, Aram says that he's had to create what he calls a bubble, an area within the MGM to house the fighters, which is sealed off from the public. Uh, they'll have to adhere to very strict protocols. They can only leave their rooms for designated training and have to be regularly tested as well, which is quite costly. A reminder of our top stories tonight. The government tells schools to punish students who join a proposed class boycott. Debate heats up over a new police unit to enforce the national security law. And a family of three is arrested for possessing a handgun, which the police say may be used to attack officers. The news from RTHK. RTHK, Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. An environmental group has accused three major candy brands of not living up to their international pledges of reducing plastic waste or providing clear recycling directions in Hong Kong. As Priscilla Ng reports, Green Earth says the government needs to play a bigger role in monitoring these companies. Green Earth says candy and chocolate products manufactured by the three major brands, Mars, Ferrero and Nestle, account for about 40% of market share in Hong Kong. While these major companies had pledged on their global websites to drastically reduce plastic use, adopt reusable or recyclable wrapping materials, and come up with clear recycling guidelines for their products by 2025, Green Earth says they have not followed through on their promises here in Hong Kong. 
Its senior project officer, Edmund Lau, said these manufacturers have not adopted any measures to reduce plastic use and said they need to do a lot more to shoulder their corporate responsibilities. We don't see them following the pledges. So what we urge for is, first thing, they have to report publicly about the plastic packaging they sold in Hong Kong and then uh, offer their ideas or plans to reach the 2025 targets. So what they are going to do with the numbers they are presenting. Either they do uh, bulk purchasing or provide uh, reusable uh, packaging uh, purchase solutions or even worse if they really really have to recycle the unavoidable plastic materials then they offer uh, recycling stations at supermarkets. Mr Lau added that the Hong Kong government also needs to be more proactive in implementing waste reduction policies. They have to uh, do the producer responsibility schemes. They have to force the brands to report and provide economic incentives to do the race reduction. And the other one is waste charging to everybody in the city. So when citizens don't want to pay for the charge, they either recycle or they chose those methods that are so like bulk purchasing or recyclable or reusable purchase. Green Earth said the administration should also compel these candy suppliers to regularly report their plastic usage to enhance transparency. Civic Party legislator and former Cathay Pacific pilot Jeremy Tam says the government-led $39 billion bailout for Hong Kong's flag carrier is bigger than he expected. He told RTHK that given Cathay's monthly outgoings, the money should last the airline for more than a year, and that's assuming current travel bans remain in place. Mr Tam also said the government should have attached conditions to Cathay's refinancing scheme to ensure staff are not made redundant. I guess uh, Paul Chan would say that the government has no choice but to bail out Cathay Pacific because the impact, if it failed, would be disastrous for Hong Kong and Hong Kong's aviation industry. Well, I have to agree to that to a certain extent. Um, it's just simply because if you look at the network of Cathay Pacific and you just do not have a replacement, not only that, and also Cathay Pacific holding a lot of traffic rights, if Cathay collapsed, Therefore, you will be losing all those traffic rights as well. But having said that, you know, over 30 billion, which is uh, more than enough money, that's to my uh, belief. Because if you look at the, uh, the announcement, I think cafe uh, expenses is about 2.5 to 3 billion per month. So with that, 39 billion in total, that actually can last for that company you know, over a year. And if you look at you know the situation at the moment, the pandemic, I think it, it will probably start flying again, maybe in two or three months' time. So why you make the assumption for you know another twelve months with zero income, you know, to save mm. this company? So I think the amount is actually bigger than what I would expect. Well, Cathay says it doesn't have any plans for job cuts right now, but says it may have to downsize to stay competitive in future. Is there any other way you could see for it to cut costs and boost revenue? I think the, the major issue at the moment is because of this you know, travel ban to any other countries. That is the major issue. It's not just within Cathay. Of course, you know, there are all 
Voices of Roma saying that they want to remove the branding of Dragonair, which is you know part of their restructure plan. Maybe um, I think you know Cathay, you know, they should make that more transparent. If that's the plan, then what happened to those you know Dragonair's employees? And, and as I mentioned, you know, it, it's important to stress that. Now you talk about the, the, the size of Cathay Pacific. If you look at it, you know, from the stock market, you know, open data, you know, it it worth about 35 billion Hong Kong dollars. And now with these capital injections, you talk about 3.9 billion itself is already double of what Cathay Pacific is worth. So I think you know the government should have a more say in regarding to the redundancy or the pay cut. Okay, well, the government estimates that it is going to get a return of around 7.5% eventually on the amount of money that it's putting into Cathay Pacific. Do you think that's a bit too optimistic, then? Well, I think it's too optimistic for how they project it. It's a five-year plan. You know, that's what the government projects. Um, but also, the, the major consideration is about the share options. Uh, but that's only provided if the Cathay share price goes higher than your options price. We don't know what is the option price at the moment, but that is a bit optimistic for that part. But of course, for the standard interest rate, which is the 3%, 3%, 3%, and then I think believe it's 5, 7, and 9, you know, for eight years, that that part, you know, you can pretty much guarantee that it will pay back. But if you look at it, you know, you talk about $30 billion. As I mentioned, it's already the actual worth of Cathay, how they're going to pay back that in five years? I mean, it's just like think about your mortgage. If you take a 100% mortgage at your home, can you pay back in five years? I don't think so. So it's pretty much guaranteed. It's sort of like a bricking loan or something like that. You expect Cathay will refinance in a few years' time to pay off the government. Former Cathay pilot and lawmaker Jeremy Tan speaking to Mike Weeks. China has removed pangolins from its official list of traditional Chinese medicine treatments, according to reports. The move, reported by the mainland's Health Times newspaper, comes after Beijing raised the animal's protected status to the highest level last week. The scaly mammals have been pushed to the brink by illegal hunting for their scales and meat. Pangolins are in the spotlight as they were found to carry strains of coronaviruses similar to COVID-19. Earlier, Anna-Marie Evans talked to David Oson, Director of Conservation for WWF Hong Kong, about Beijing's decision. Well, there's two important milestones in pangolin conservation that have occurred. The first is China has uplisted all nine species of pangolin to Class 1 protected species. They were previously Class 2 protected species. And this, this offers them more protection and, and allows the government to have greater enforcement for their other species, different species conservation. The second step that China has taken that, that we applaud is they have removed pangolin from the pharmacopoeia of the traditional Chinese medicine. That's what we've heard. And the pharmacopoeia is not out yet for 2020, but we're looking forward to this as a real significant move towards reducing the demand for pangolin scales. So if they've taken it off the pharmacopoeia, this means that it can no longer, by law, be used in traditional Chinese medicine? Well, there's some further steps that could be taken to really help secure a future for pangolins. And one of these is that the pangolin should be removed as an ingredient for different prescriptions. 
in the traditional Chinese medicine pharmacopoeia annexes. Now, if that occurs, then pangolin stockpiles cannot be used. There is concern that some of the pangolin scale stockpiles, sometimes there's been, they've been driving smuggling of illegal pangolin scales. In China, the law states very clearly that you're not allowed to use any pangolin scales other than Chinese pangolin, and you're not to import any, any scales. And no, you can utilize stockpiles, but nothing before a certain year. But the, the stockpiles are, are pretty sizable, and there are some suggestions that they have been used as a cover for smuggling. So we believe that if China can take some additional steps, that this will really strengthen the, the protection given to pangolin species. It'll reduce demand, and this will slow or, or, or stop the illegal trade in pangolin scales and, and um, pangolin meat. You say there's nine species of uh, pangolin. So, I mean, obviously this, this smuggling is huge and, and um, the consumption of pangolin has been huge and its use of its scales, as you were saying, about these massive stockpiles. But what is the situation with these nine species? Are, are any of them endangered? Uh, how close are they coming to extinction? Well, pangolin are endangered primarily from the illegal wildlife trade. All nine species have really diminished in the wild. Some of them are critically endangered. The Chinese pangolin, for example, is, is quite threatened. A number of others, the, the Philippine pangolin in Palawan, the Malay pangolin, quite a number of them are threatened. Some in Africa are increasingly threatened, like the giant pangolin, for example, um, which has very large scales. Uh, this is literally tons and tons of scales representing hundreds of thousands of individuals um, are being, are being uh, illegally transported to Asia from Africa. So... This has to have a devastating impact on pangolin populations. And if something is not done, we will lose pangolins uh, either entirely or certainly as an important part of any ecosystem. In China, the Chinese pangolin is quite rare now, although Hong Kong might have a few. But uh, we're not sure where the status of pangolins is in the region too well yet. More than 34 years after the murder of the Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palmer, prosecutors say they've identified his killer. He is Stig Engström, a graphic designer who died 20 years ago. The prosecutors say two witnesses had seen a person dressed like him running from the murder scene. Mr Palmer was killed in the centre of Stockholm in 1986 when he and his wife were returning home from the cinema. The killing shocked the Scandinavian country, which had had little history of political violence. Engström was interviewed as a witness during the early stages of the inquiry. Hans Melander has been leading the investigation. We can see and say that this is one of the biggest police investigations in the world. It's often compared with the assassination of JFK and even also with the Lopkabi bombing. And if we look to Sweden, then of course it is by far Sweden's biggest criminal investigation ever. Prosecutors have said Engström was likely to have acted on his own. Over the years, more than 130 people claim to have been behind the murder. A petty criminal was convicted in 1989 but freed on appeal. The BBC's Danny Eberhard has more. There were a number of uh, early police mistakes. For example, at the beginning of the investigation, they didn't um, cordon off the crime scene. Um, so valuable evidence was uh, perhaps lost then. Um, and they uh, investigators often talk about the golden hour straight after a crime and how important that is. Um, and 
also there have been uh, uh, great difficulties obviously for example the prosecutors were outlining some of these in the terms of the difficulties of trying to um uh, cor correlate witness accounts with the description of the the person they've now named as the murderer Stieg Engstrom um so there it's a hugely complicated thing there there are thousands upon thousands of documents. It apparently it will take years to read all of the documents that have been produced in the 34 years since the killing. We have seen a number of uh, uh, conspiracy theories over time. So one of them was that the, um, the Kurdish PKK uh, group was involved. That's uh, a, a group that was fighting for independence in, in uh, the east of Turkey. Um, he, Olaf, Olaf Palmer, had declared them a terrorist group, so it was an idea that they might have been involved. The prosecutor said that the South Africa theory, um, which was one because he was also extremely outspoken against the apartheid regime. Um, so there was a theory that the secret police in South Africa might have been involved in the killing. This wasn't totally discounted by the prosecutors. One of them said he thought it was an interesting lead, but there was not enough information to pursue. There were other ones that it was a, a link to an arms deal uh, with, a, 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 with India, um, in which several of the uh, several Indian figures were bribed. Um, and that implicated the Prime Minister of Rajiv Gandhi. So there were a number of other theories. And also he was outspoken against the US, um, not just the US, the Soviet Union as well. But he um, was outspoken against US bombing, for example, in North Vietnam. So he managed to make a lot of enemies. But uh, for some on the left, he's considered a great hero. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Facing this pandemic, we are all a bit anxious and distressed. The government understands the challenge that we face in an ever-changing situation. We must race against time and prepare for these changes and do our best with every detail and every arrangement. No matter how difficult it may be, this is our responsibility. At this time, with everyone's ongoing efforts and support, we have faith that together we can fight the virus. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December We'll have moments to remember Remember, remember. Well, this is it Our kind of music Nostalgia With Ray Codero all the way, all the way until 1 a.m.
And there we have it. The beautiful green leaves of summer with Johnny Pierce and his piano and his orchestra. Nostalgia continues. Let's say hello to Jim, right? Jim who? <laughs> Jim Reeves, of course. 